It's good to see you all here. And today, so for those who are new, my name is Tom Sylvia, the associate pastor here at East Shore. Normally it's Pastor John up here this morning, but as you can already see, we swapped places. Uh, um, so come back next week to hear him if you haven't, or you can listen to him online. So definitely check out the sermons there. You can do that at eshorebaptist.org. It's our practice here at Eshore to preach through a book of the Bible. And right now we're going through a chapter of the Bible, Psalm, Psalm 119. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 119. If you do not have a Bible, then there's a blue hardback Bible somewhere around you. Please feel free to use that. We're going to be on page 608. That's page 608. Psalm 119 is the largest chapter in the Bible, consisting of 176 verses, and it's made up of 22 stanzas for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And today we're going to be in verses 81 through 96, which is the Kof and Lamed stanzas. So that's Psalm 119, verses 81 through 96. Uh, per our tradition, if you will stand as we read, let's read, starting in verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your word. All your commands are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for holding us fast. Thank you so much, Lord, for taking much delight in us, for saving us through the blood of your Son. Lord, help us to delight in your word. Help us to search the scriptures for the life you have given us. And may we, Lord, just commit our whole lives to the obedience of your word. Where we are falling short, Lord, reveal that to us humbly, Correct us. We are yours. Save us. For we will not forsake your precepts. Teach us this morning what your word says. 
and just confirming in our very beings, Lord, the promises of your word. Amen. Amen. So these two stanzas have an inherent heaviness that is naturally within them because they speak to a truth we don't like to really discuss. And that is persecution. There's a reality of persecution that we walk in every day. So what is persecution? Persecution is when someone is oppressed or afflicted because of their beliefs. All persecution is suffering, but not all suffering is a result of persecution. Biblical persecution is when you remain faithful to the gospel and the commands of Christ, and you are physically or emotionally afflicted for doing so. Perhaps some in this room have seen persecution or have been persecuted. And you can resonate with some of David's questions. When will you comfort me, Lord? Where are you in my time of trouble? How long will this pain continue? So you're in good company because there's other biblical characters that do the very same in Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 2. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? It doesn't take long for someone to find more and more of these statements. If you read the major and minor prophets, you'll be confronted with them. It's a very common theme, persecution. And it's also in the New Testament. I did a brief survey of the New Testament and found that 17 of the 27 books in the New Testament speak to Christian persecution. That's over half of the letters preparing us to be persecuted. Now, why is persecution such a prominent theme throughout the Bible? It's simple. Because all of God's children will be persecuted. And He wants to equip us for when it happens. We have a warning. We can get prepared. It's going to happen. It's not limited to another country. Let me read some uh, verses here. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all... That is, every believer, without exception, all believers who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, there's the warning, so all will be persecuted. And it's not limited to Timothy. We also, that's the testimony from Paul, but we also have this testimony from the Lord Himself, which Peter reveals to us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called... This is a very strong word, called. We're being prepared. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. The suffering this passage is speaking to is the persecution of Jesus on His way to the cross. If you have read the story of the crucifixion, then you will be confronted by the intensity of the persecution and suffering that our Lord endured for us. I watched the movie, The Passion of the Christ. If you haven't, I would definitely recommend it, but be warned, it doesn't shy away from revealing the visual pain and violence that our Lord went through. But that movie, that movie helped me to comprehend the intense persecution that Jesus went through for us. 
And it was after watching that movie, and once you fully see what Jesus did on the cross for our sins, it becomes a lot harder to question whether or not he loves you. And that suffering, that suffering on the cross, was the example that Christ left us with. An example, and not only that, but it was a call to follow. What, if, what has the Lord called you to? Well, many things, and one is to suffer. Now, I found these statistics from Open Door USA. It's a Christian nonprofit organization that focuses on the persecuted Christians. So these statistics are just from the year 2021 alone. Over 360 million Christians are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,765 believers were detained without trial, arrested, and sentenced or imprisoned for their faith. In taking these statistics at face value, that means approximately 30% of all Christians living today are living in areas where the potential for extreme persecution is highly probable. It is a day-to-day reality for them. You may be following the news about some Christian persecution and notice that just a little over, just a month ago approximately in Burkina Faso or Nigeria, there were church buildings attacked. Two churches, eight Christians were killed and over 40 were kidnapped. Their prayers are probably similar to what we have David here. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, Lord. When will you bring us relief? You may be thinking, this has never happened to me. But Tom, you're telling me that the Scripture is warning us. It's almost like that of a promise that it's coming. We'll be persecuted. So, does that mean that this level of persecution is supposed to happen to me? Does this also mean that if I haven't been persecuted, that I'm not a Christian? I'm not saying that. I'm speaking some of these things first that you're aware that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world today living in the possibility of being persecuted for their faith. First, you need to recognize the reality that it's there. It is a truth that happens for 30% of our brothers and sisters. It's not unique to some period, time period in ancient past. It's the same today. Humanity has not changed and has not evolved. But the scriptures are clear that all believers, and if you're a believer in this room, then you qualify, you're a believer, that all of us will be persecuted. Now, how intense will that persecution be? What level will it be? Well, that information is not revealed to us. We may never, ever have our life at the stake for being, following Christ. Our life may never be threatened. We may never go to prison for our faith and, you know, and give thanks that that hasn't happened. But we will be mocked. We will be accused. We will have plans devised against us. The American government does not shield us from persecution. Persecution takes many forms, and none of them are to be taken lightly, either in their weight or in their reward. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. This, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus right there shows us that persecution is more than being killed or tortured. He says it can be words, plans to defame our character, to make our lives miserable. You see, in verse 12, he's saying that the prophets, blessed are you when you're reviled, rebuked. Why? Because this happened to the prophets before us. Were all the prophets killed? No. Were some reviled? Yes. Our lives may not be at stake, but we will be harassed for the cause of Christ. It will happen. Let me quote Kevin DeYoung. We should not think more highly of our suffering than it deserves, but neither should we make it out to be something less than it is. So what do we do when we are being persecuted? How do the scriptures help us endure persecution? Well, I see three ways in this text, and I'm going to begin with the first. The scriptures reveal to us the gospel. I cannot think of a greater motivation to remain firm in the faith during times of persecution than that of the gospel. Which is why I think David begins with the gospel in this part of the psalm. Look at verses 81 and 82. My, song, my, my, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? The promise David longs for here is none other than the gospel itself. It is the promised Messiah who takes away the sins of the world and also to conquer the world, to conquer Satan, demons, to conquer the last enemy, death. The Messiah is and has come to make His enemies His footstool. Romans 8, 31-35 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Nothing. The world may come and threaten us with our lives. They may charge us with disown Christ or die. It is perhaps their greatest weapon, the threat of death. However, they need something greater than that to threaten us with. Why? Because what they don't know is that death is now our servant. Death serves us by ushering us to our king. We used to be scared of death. We used to fear it because through death we were shipped into the abyss. But now death gracefully sells us to the pearly gates to be welcomed but to the cheers of all the saints. Threatening us with death where is your sting? What about money? The world can take from us money, our property. They can take away our rights. But they can never take away the promises of the gospel. The promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. The promise that God will avenge those who persecute us. The promise that our God will comfort us in our affliction. 
the promise that our God will love us for all eternity and that we are safely held in the power of his hand. Our joy is not in money. It's not in anything of this world, but firmly rooted in the eternal love of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, our King. It is also through the gospel that we have become the church who is the bride of Christ. Therefore, when the world attacks the church, they are attacking the bride of Christ. Husbands, when someone insults your wife, when someone attacks your wife, what is your response? Protect, defend. How much more so will our Lord's response be? Let me quote Stephen Charnock, a Puritan from the 17th century. It is a foolish thing for any to contend against the welfare of God's people, the church. It is to strive against an almighty and unwearied providence. It is as foolish as a worm desiring to dig down a mountain or a fly trying to stop a stone. It is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, and that is right where our persecutors are going to land. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, the church, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The gospel is the power of God to save sinner and the courage for all of us to stand in persecution. The second way the scriptures help us endure. Let's move on. And that is the scriptures give us life. Look with me at verse 88 and 93. Verse 88 is a request to God for life. In your steadfast love, Lord, give me life. Verse 93 is God answering David's prayer. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. God, I need you to give me life. God, here's my word. Every word God speaks contains within it life. God is life. Therefore, everything that flows from God, whether words, actions, or His very presence, flows life. He is the source of all life. There is not a single word in the Scripture that is not designed to bestow upon us life. All Scripture is God-breathed. And that phrase, God breathed, has within it the connotation that as God is speaking, He is also breathing, imparting His very life into each and every word. So much life has been spoken into the Scriptures that they are alive today. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active. David reaps these benefits in this very psalm. Verse 92, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. What kept David alive? What kept him from losing his spirit? It was the very living Word of God. Thomas Manton. David speaks to the whole Word of God and primarily for the promises of support and deliverance. Elsewhere, he found nothing but sorrow, but in the Word of God, joy and comfort. Verse 83, listen to this one. For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. In ancient Israel, they used to store wine in what's called a wineskin. And when it was empty, they hung it up to dry in tents. And if the tent ever got filled with smoke, caught fire, the wineskin would wrinkle and grow black. 
So kind of what David is saying here is that as he has endured such trials and tribulations, that he's worn out, that he's all beat up, that he feels useless, but because of the Scriptures, he is still able to worship and work for the Lord. That gives him life to press on. Spurgeon, here's my Spurgeon quote. Grace is a living power which survives that which would suffocate all other forms of existence. Fire cannot consume it, and smoke cannot smother it. A man may be reduced to skin and bone, and all his comfort may be dried out of him. And yet he may hold fast his integrity and glorify his God. There is abundant life in these pages that is freely at our disposal. Take it whenever you like. Use it, friends. Experience the fullness of Christ, for we need it as much now as when we are under affliction. And the more life we receive now, the better equipped we will be for the times of tribulation. Let's move on to this third point. The Scriptures show us that the wicked will be judged and the Gospel will go out. Let me look at this first part real quick. Verses 95 and 96. The wicked lie and wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. What does David mean by the limits of all perfection? The limits to all perfection. Well, this is a statement of situational irony where believers think everything is all well and good. They think the persecutors think that they have the upper hand and the persecutors have found ways to justify their very actions. However, as life continues to unfold for them, what they thought was justified and right ends up being their ruin. There's a proverb that goes well with this verse. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, and, but its end is the way of death. The wicked are fooled into thinking their ways are perfect. But just like all men who build their house on sand, it tumbles like a house of cards. So how, are, how is their ways, or how are their ways limited? I'm going to give you three ways. First, the wicked are limited because their actions will be judged by God, and in the end will be judged by God in the end. We all know this one very well, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here, but I'm going to offer a quick summary. The wicked will continue to be wicked, but the bill is coming due. And the wicked foolishly believe they're getting away with their sin and their evil acts. However, the God of justice will not allow one wrong deed to go unpunished. For there will be a day in which all people will appear before the judgment seat. And for us who are in Christ, it will be a throne of grace. But for those outside of Christ, it will be a throne of wrath. And I fear for the soul who doesn't repent. It is a great comfort to us knowing that our God will redeem all the woes the world brings upon us. Let me show you the second way they're, limit, they're limited. The wicked are limited because their actions are being judged by God right now. It may seem like the people are getting away with their sin presently and will only pay the price after death. The wicked continue to flourish. But look at me, Lord. I'm following your rules. And look where I am. It seems like they're winning. However... 
we know from Scripture that the opposite is true. G.K. Beale, God is always at work turning the apparent blessing of the wicked into actual cursing. Psalm 9, verse 15 through 16. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made and the net that they hid. Their own food has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment and the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Let me give you some examples. And first, first and foremost, perhaps the most well-known is Haman in the book of Esther. What happened to Haman? What did Haman want? Well, Haman wanted to be served by all. He wanted especially Mordecai to serve him. He didn't like Mordecai. And what happened through a series of events, Haman ended up serving Mordecai for a whole day, showing him around town. Like, look how great Mordecai is. He saved the king. <laughs> Haman didn't like that. <laughs> Haman wanted to hang Mordecai. So he built the gallow for him. Well, what happened? The very gallow he built, he used. <laughs> Haman's plot was revealed and the king had him hung. The same is true of those who accused Daniel of not praying to the king. Daniel's accusers had him thrown into the lion's den. In the end, what happened to the accusers? They were thrown into the lion's den. The story of Absalom, the son of David, he attempted to take the throne from his father, but in the end, he was unsuccessful. What led to his capture? His hair. Well, it's an interesting description of Absalom in 2 Samuel that pays special attention to his hair. 2 Samuel 14, 25-26. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. For from the, excuse me, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Really nice. Special attention is given to his hair. Why is that? Well, Absalom treasured it. He boasted about it. Well, let's read about how he was caught. Second Samuel chapter 18, four chapters later. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. He was caught by his hair, all tangled, riding on the mule. The very, this very amazing hair caught and hung him by the tree until I believe it was Joab came and got him. <laughs> that which he took great pride in is what the Lord used to bring him down. I believe even the end of Judges chapter 7 or 8, I have it in your notes. The very phrase is even more explicit. <laughs> there are many other stories we could go through the scriptures to prove this point. However, time limits us. But if you want to see how the Lord works in this way, then I recommend you read a book by G.K. Bill called Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom. There is no joy in the life of an unbeliever, just something that seeks to mimic it. Now, let me finish with my third sub-point. 
They're, the wicked are limited because their actions are only furthering God's plan. See, the wicked attempt to plot against the Lord and against the Lord of hosts, but quite the opposite once again happens. The gospel only spreads. Listen to how Luke shows us this truth in the book of Acts. I'm going to read a series of verses, so just stay with me and they'll be on the screen. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And they, and, and as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution, speaking to Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Let me pause. You remember what Jesus told them to do before he went right back up? He said, go spread the gospel throughout all Judea, all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's happening. Let me keep reading. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, he saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There was much joy in that city. Silence the men. They scatter. Gospel is proclaimed. People believe. And it keeps going in Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 21. And now those who were scattered, once again, the persecution that scattered them, scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed, turned to the Lord. What they meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. And the stories aren't exclusive to the book of Acts, but it is the norm throughout church history where the gospel is proclaimed in the midst of persecution. The gospel spreads. This is the testimony of Justin Martyr. It is evident that none can terrify or affright that Justin Martyr lived in the second century. And being under any of us who throughout the whole world believe in Jesus, for while we are under the agonies of death, under the tortures of the cross, are exposed to the wild beasts, punished with bonds and fire and every other kind of torment, it is certain that we do not depart from our profession. But by how much more, how much the more we are afflicted with the sorts of torments, by so much the more does the number of the faithful and true worshipers of God increase through the name of Jesus. We also have the story of John Huss, who lived from 13, 13, 1371 to when he was martyred in 1415. He questioned the Catholic Church over their indulgences and other practices. Well, 
his, 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 his teaching started to become widespread all throughout Bohemia. And the Catholic Church was like, we got to stop this man because he's becoming influential. So what happened to John Huss? The Catholic Church called him to a trial. The trial was rigged. He, they declared him a heretic, and they burned John Huss at the stake. They wanted to silence his voice, and so they thought they did. However, God had other plans. John Huss ended up going down in history and inspired another man nearly a hundred years later. And that man's name was Martin Luther, who followed and continued the teachings of John Huss. What did, what did Martin Luther begin to question? Indulgences. What was Martin, who was Martin Luther studying from? John Huss. And there began the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church sought to silence the Scriptures. And by doing so, the Scriptures spread throughout all of Europe. Have you ever read or heard the, the, the missionary story of Jim Elliot? He and four other missionaries went to the Ecuadorian jungle to share the gospel to the Aka tribe. Within three days of being there, the tribe brought their spears and killed all four of them. And this was only 70 years ago. Well, within a couple of years, Elizabeth Elliot, that is Jim Elliot's wife, goes to finish what Jim and his friends started. She went to share the gospel to the people who killed her husband. Speak of that bravery. What happened whenever she arrived? Well, within a few years of her being there, the Aka tribe believed. The tribe repented of their sins. They confessed Jesus as their Lord, and they became a beacon of Christ to other tribes in the area by sending out their very own missionaries throughout the region. They were spreading the gospel. And in fact, some of them, men in that tribe, went on to be martyrs themselves. That tribe was on fire for the gospel. They didn't want Jim Elliott there. They didn't want his friends there. So they killed him. But the Lord wasn't finished. Elizabeth came and the gospel won. History is replete with these stories such as these. And I would encourage you to read church history, missionary biographies, so that you can experience the power of God in the midst of evil firsthand. We serve a mighty God, and the world does not like that. The world doesn't want Him to be God, and so they will rebel and they will attack Him, which means they will inevitably attack and persecute us. Our Master, our Savior, was not spared. Why do we think we will? We are His children. We have been warned. For all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we need to be ready. Just like David was, will you be ready? When you come under fire, take refuge in the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures now so you can endure. Because it is through the Scriptures, because it is in them that we have the security of the Gospel, that we receive life from the very Father Himself and have the assurance that God's justice will be swiftly administered upon all evil. The Scriptures are here to encourage us and give strength. So, let us pray. Lord, thank You, Father, first and foremost, that You love us. Thank You, Father, Lord, 
that we have the right, the privilege, the honor of being called your children. And Lord, thank you for letting us know ahead of time that persecution is coming. That Lord, we are your sheep sent out in the midst of wolves, but you, our great shepherd, are there to watch, to walk alongside us every way. And Father, we pray for boldness. We pray for great courage, strength, to share your gospel at all times, even if it means that we will be physically, emotionally afflicted by the world. But Lord, help us to endure it. And Lord, may your gospel spread because of it. Use us mightily, Lord, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, to proclaim your gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the love, the grace, the mercy, and the kindness that you have lavishly poured out on us. We love you, Lord. Amen.